thank you, uh, Mr. Michael and Chris, for helping us today with that. Okay, we'll be in Psalm 37 this morning. Psalm 37, and we've been here for a couple of weeks, and we'll continue uh, our study of Psalm 37. And we'll begin reading uh, in verse 1, and then we'll read through verse 15 this morning, and our focus will be verses 12 to 15. Okay? Psalm 37, verse 1. says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass. And fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evildoing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow, to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we thank you of how it prepares us, Lord, and teaches us how to endure the many afflictions that we will face in this life. That, Lord, even when the wicked plot against the righteous, Lord, even when they gnash their teeth, Lord, we know that you are not idle, that you are not asleep, Lord, that you are not unaware of what is taking place on the earth, but that you are observing all things, that, Lord, you have it in your purpose and in your plan, and that, Lord, in due time you will rise up, and, Lord, you will deliver your people. So, Father, we pray that we would, by faith, Lord, observe you in heaven. Lord, what you are doing whenever the wicked seem to rule the day. Lord, how it is that you despise them. Lord, how it is that you mock them and ridicule them. And, Lord, how in due time you will rise up and that, Lord, you will put an end to them. So, Lord, may we not fret over evildoers or be envious of those who do wrong. But rather, may we be those who trust in the Lord and, Lord, who wait patiently for you to give salvation to your people. So, Lord, teach us today, Lord, concerning these things, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are teaching through this psalm where the prophet is explaining this contrast that exists between the righteous and the wicked, right? In order to keep the righteous from falling into sin, right? From falling into the sin of fretting, of anxiety because of evildoers, or of being envious of wrongdoers because of the prosperity that they possess in this present life. Right, we remember that Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous man is called to live by his faith. Right, in this present life, he is going to face many obstacles, many impediments to eternal life. 
And the only way he can overcome these tribulations, these obstacles, is by his faith. He must live, not by what his eye sees, right? not according to his circumstances, but by faith in the word of God. And we remember that Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction, right? A conviction of things that have not been seen yet, right? The final outcome of both the righteous and the wicked has not been seen yet. It has not been seen by us in that we've not experienced it. We've not seen it with our own eyes. Yet we are called to live in this life. We are called to judge men, not according to what we see with our eyes, not according to their riches, not according to their possessions, not according to the pleasures and the powers that one might have in this life, but according to what will be declared of that person by God on the day of judgment. This is the key. We must judge a man not according to his present condition, but according to the eternal destiny that awaits him, where he will be consigned on the day of judgment. But this has not happened yet. So we must see it not by sight, but by faith. And our faith must overcome and contradict what we see in this present world. For in this life, it appears, right? It appears by sight that God favors the wicked and has no regard for the righteous. But when we go to the word of God, it tells us the exact opposite. Then it becomes crystal clear that this isn't the case at all, but to the contrary, evildoers will be cut off and it is those who wait for the Lord, they are the ones who will inherit the land and they will dwell in abundant prosperity. So we have to keep this before us, before our eyes, by faith in the word of God. So let's go back to Psalm 37. We'll pick up in verse 12 today. Verse 12. There it says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. There, the wicked, they plot against the righteous. The wicked gnash their teeth at the righteous, right? The wicked hate the righteous so much. They find the righteous utterly detestable. They are repulsive to them, so much so that they cannot tolerate them. They cannot bear to be around them. They plot against them. They scheme against the righteous because they are so filled with hatred, with malice, with anger, with spite, contempt for the righteous. So much so that the psalmist says he gnashes his teeth at him, right? He's so enraged by the righteous man, by his presence, by his life, that he's gnashing his teeth against him and then plotting and planning malicious evil schemes against the righteous man. And why is the wicked doing this? What have the righteous done to upset him so much, right? What great evil has the righteous man committed against the wicked man to deserve this kind of treatment? Are they murderers? Are they adulterers? Are they thieves and liars? Have the righteous been abusing and using the wicked? And this is why the wicked hate them and treat them with such contempt? No, this is not the case at all. Because if they were doing that, they wouldn't be righteous men. But here they are called righteous men. So what is the great crime that the righteous man commits against the wicked? It's a godly life. Living a godly life. This is why the wicked hate the righteous so much. Because of righteousness' sake. 
They cannot bear to be around the righteous because the righteous will not join in with them in their sins. And when we don't join in with them in sin, it pricks their conscience. It torments them because it reminds them that there's a day of judgment coming. And this is what they hate, this concept, this idea, because the day of judgment puts fear in men. The day of judgment restrains their sin and they don't want anything being an impediment to their sins and pleasures. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, this is what our Lord Jesus Christ tells us, that we are blessed. We are blessed and that this will certainly happen to the righteous in this life. Matthew chapter 5 verse 10 says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who wore before you. There Jesus is pronouncing the blessing, a blessing upon the righteous. Those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, not for sin, not because they're committing sins against God, but because they're living a godly and a righteous life, then people are going to insult them. They're going to persecute them. They're going to lie, say false things about them, accuse them of committing many evils. But this isn't the case at all. This is the same as Psalm chapter 37, verse 12. The wicked plots against him. He gnashes his teeth. He persecutes the righteous man. Now, why is this? For what reason? Well, two reasons. Two reasons the wicked hate the righteous. First, because of their life. They hate the way the righteous live. The life of the Christian gnaws at the guilty conscience of the wicked. It pricks their conscience when we don't join in with them in evil doing, because it testifies to them that there is a distinction between good and evil, that there is a lawgiver that there is a judge, and that there is a day of judgment coming upon the world. This is what the wicked man wants to smother. He wants to smother and extinguish any knowledge of the law of God, any knowledge of good and evil, of morality, because if there exists morality, if there is good and evil, then there must be a God who issues His decrees, who gives His laws, and there is one that we will be held accountable to. This is why men love the false doctrine of evolution. Because evolution eliminates God, and if there is no God, there is no judge that they will answer to, and they're able to give unrestrained madness to their sin. But we can't be like this. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And we'll pick up in verse... 1. 1 Peter 4 verse 1 says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentile, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. 
but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There, the wicked are surprised that we don't run with them in the same excesses of dissipation that they run in. They are surprised that we don't join in with them in this flood of sin. And then what do they do? Do they praise us for that? Do they say, we're really proud of you? We're really, uh, it's upstanding the way that you live a disciplined, self-controlled life? No, they malign us, is what he says. They malign you because you don't join in in their sins. So the life of the righteous, the way that the righteous live, will be a source of contention against the wicked. Not because we're out doing evil. We want to live a simple, godly, peaceful, quiet life. But they won't let us because they don't like it that we don't join in with sin. So the first reason the wicked hate the righteous is because the life of the righteous testifies against their wicked life. The second reason is our words. Our words, what comes out of our mouth. Right? If we believe the gospel, then we are going to speak the gospel. What we believe will come out of our mouth. A person who never talks about the gospel doesn't really believe it. A person who doesn't talk about sin doesn't really believe what the Bible says about sin. Because if we believe what the Bible says, if we have true faith, then it will come out of our mouth. And according to the gospel, the gospel of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2, he says that God will judge the secrets of men according to my gospel. The judgment of God against the secrets of men. And what are the secrets of men? Other than their sins against God, this is a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if we believe the gospel, then we're going to speak the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. 2 Corinthians 4, 13 says, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. The same spirit of faith. And what does the spirit of faith say? I believe, therefore I spoke. So we believe, therefore we speak. The gospel does not just contain words concerning grace, love, mercy. Those are part of the gospel. But the gospel also contains words concerning sin and the day of judgment. And when we open our mouth, and when we speak God's word concerning sin and the judgment of God that's coming upon the ungodly, then men will hate us. Right? The wicked will gnash their teeth and plot against the righteous because they cannot bear to have God's word of judgment pronounced against their sin. And who is God's mouth in this present world? We are, right? The church is. We are the ones who are called to speak on behalf of God as ambassadors of Christ. We are to speak on behalf of Christ and implore men to be reconciled to God. But if we're telling them they need to be reconciled, it assumes that we have to tell them that they are separated from God. And what is it that makes a separation between us and our God? It is our sins. It is our iniquities. And when we talk about these things, people don't like it. They don't like it. They find it very offensive. They find it very judgmental that we would speak against sin. Right? I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. They want war against me when? When I open my mouth. When I speak what is true and right, 
they want to make war against me. This is what it says in Psalm 120, verse 7. So for these two reasons, our life and our words, this caused the wicked to rant and rave against the righteous. The righteous want to live a quiet, peaceful, dignified life. But they know they must live a righteous life and they must live a truthful life. A peaceful life, a righteous life, a truthful life. All of these three, three are in harmony together. They all go together. This is the Christian life. We want peace, but not at the expense of truth and never at the expense of righteousness. We cannot compromise on truth and righteousness in order to obtain a superficial peace in this life. We have to hold to the word of God. John chapter 3. John 3, Jesus tells us why it is that we will have no peace in this life from the wicked. And why it is that they plot and why it is that they gnash their teeth. John chapter 3 verse 19. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is the judgment, he says. Light has come into the world. And here, this light is Christ. Christ is the light. He came into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so what did they do to the light? They wanted to extinguish him. They wanted to put the light out. In, in the same way, it'll be with us. We are not the capital light as Christ is, but we are little lights, right? Aren't we supposed to let our light shine before men? so that they may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven? Aren't we supposed to live the life of Christ so that the light of Christ shines in us? Well, do men only love darkness and hate light in Jesus' day? Or is this true in our day as well? This is a universal truth that has been true since Adam, and it will be true for the rest of time, to the end of the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And if we are living according to the light of Christ, then they're going to hate us. The wicked hate the righteous for this reason. The life and the words of the righteous are light in this present world, and this light testifies to men that their deeds are evil deeds, and because they love darkness and hate light, they will fight against it. They will fight and kick and do whatever they can to malign it, to extinguish it, to discredit it, to get away from it. This is as Jesus says, John chapter 7, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. The world hates Christ because Christ testifies against the world that the deeds of the world are evil. And as having evil deeds... Who is against them? Who's going to judge them? Who's going to condemn them? God is going to do so. Well, aren't we supposed to testify to the truth as well? And the truth we testify to is the same truth that Christ testified true to. 
It is the word of Christ. And when we testify to the truth, men will hate it. They hate it because they love sin. They love it and they want to drink their sin like water. So the wicked are of this world, therefore they hate God, they hate Christ, they hate the word of God, they hate the people of God. Anything associated with God, they hate. Anything associated with truth, with righteousness, with the light, they hate. They hate everything that is good and right. And since they cannot go to heaven and kill God, they cannot go to heaven and kill Christ, they can't do that. But who is on this earth? Who can they attack? It's the righteous. It is the people of God. We are here in this world, and so what are they going to do? They are going to plot. They're going to plan. They're going to scheme against the righteous. They're going to gnash their teeth in anger and hatred of them, and they're going to want to destroy them, to utterly destroy them, not because of any sins the righteous are committing, but because of their godliness. Because they don't commit sins, they want to live a godly life. Psalm 109, verse 5. Psalm 109, verse 5. says, Thus they have repaid me evil for good, and hatred for my love. I did good, and they repaid me with evil. I love them, and they responded with hatred for me. They repaid my love with hatred. This is the experience of the righteous in this life. And if it's not happening to us, it's because we're not living a godly life. As we read yesterday in 1 Timothy chapter 5, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If we're not suffering persecution in some measure, then it's because we're not living a godly life and we're not speaking up. We're not speaking the word of God. If we do this, I'm not saying that we all are going to have our heads chopped off, but we will suffer persecution in some regard if we are speaking according to the word of God. Okay, verse 13, Psalm 37, 13. What is God doing when he sees this? The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. While the wicked are raging, right? They're ranting and raving, foaming at the mouth against the righteous. They're plotting and scheming to destroy the upright in heart. God sees all of this, what's taking place on the earth, and God is in heaven laughing at them, right? God finds it humorous, right? And this laughing is not the laughing that you would do at a cute, cuddly baby. This is the laughing of mockery. God is mocking them in heaven because of the futility of their attempts to destroy the righteous. Now, why is this stated? Why is he telling us what God is doing? This is for our benefit, for our comfort, for our consolation, because while the wicked are scheming against us, while the wicked are gnashing their teeth at the righteous, they're terrifying creatures, right? They're like big grizzly bears. They're like ravenous lions who are seeking to destroy us. And we are tempted to think that the wicked are going to triumph over the righteous, especially when we see that God is delayed in coming to our help, right? Where is God at? Why is God allowing this to happen? Why doesn't God step in? Why doesn't he intercede? Why doesn't he stop them from doing the things that they do? Because not only do they plot and plan, they implement their plans. And many times they're able to, in some measure, fulfill the evil desires of their hearts. So where is God in all this? And what is God doing in heaven when all of these things are happening on the earth? 
Why is he delayed in coming to our aid? Well, God is delayed not because God is unaware in what is taking place. God is delayed not because he lacks the power to thwart the plans of the wicked. Right? God is delayed not because the wicked have outsmarted God and God is in heaven regrouping, trying to figure out a way to outsmart the wicked, trying to figure out a way to overcome them. So if God is delayed in helping the righteous, it is intentionally, it is on purpose, it is for our good, for our benefit, in order to test our faith. Right? God does not send immediate help to the righteous. He does this intentionally, not accidentally, and he does it in order to test our faith so that we have to endure and persevere through many tribulations until we enter into the kingdom of God for our benefit. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. It's for his glory and for our good. His glory and our good is why God will allow the wicked to, for a moment, have the upper hand. In a sense, in a sense. John chapter 11, verse 1. says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, uh, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go up to Judea again. Here, Lazarus is sick. And his sickness is very severe, very severe. And without the intercession of Jesus, he's going to die. Now, can Jesus heal him without being there? We know that he can. He did that another time. Could Jesus have come earlier before he died and healed him? Yes. But why did Jesus delay? Did he delay because he didn't know what was going to happen? Did he delay because he had no care for Lazarus and for Mary and Martha? No, it tells us that he loved them very much. So when he's delaying, it's for their benefit. It's for their benefit because what he's going to do is greater than just healing him of a sickness. Raising him from the dead is a greater miracle than healing someone who is sick, and it's going to give to them a greater confirmation of their faith and also bring glory to God. So his delay was not an oversight. It was not a miscalculation on the part of Jesus. It was done intentionally for the glory of God and for the benefit of the saints. And this is how it is with all tribulation. God could give us immediate relief of everything. He could immediately transport all of us to heaven right now. He could immediately glorify us right now. We would never have to deal with sin again. We would never have to deal with the wicked. We would never have to deal with temptation or the devil. God could do all of that in an instant if he wanted to, but he doesn't. He delays. He waits, and he tells us we have to wait. And while we're waiting, what do we have to do? We have to trust in him. We have to live a godly life. We have to pursue righteousness while we wait for God to give to us the full measure of our salvation. 
And part of this waiting is enduring the schemes, the plots, the plans, the anger, the rage, the gnashing of the wicked. So as long as they are scheming, right, as long as they are gnashing their teeth, right, as uncomfortable as it is, as frightening as it may appear, as difficult as it is to endure, we know for certain from our passage that God is aware of what's taking place. None of these things are unnoticed by God. God is not idle. God is not asleep. God has not forgotten our plight. God is not uh, on a vacation somewhere and he doesn't see what's happening. This is not the case at all. What is God doing in heaven while the wicked are plotting and planning and scheming against the righteous? He's laughing. He's watching it all unfold. He's laughing at them because he knows how futile their plans are. He knows what he's going to do to them, that he's going to turn it on their own head. He's mocking them because he knows in due time, yes, they're digging a pit so that the righteous will fall into it, but who's going to fall into it? God's going to make them fall into it, and so God is laughing at them in anticipation of what he's going to do to them. This is what we must understand and see, right? Again, for our comfort, for our consolation, so that we will wait for the Lord. Because when the wicked gnash their teeth at us, when they devise wicked schemes against the righteous, it appears for a brief moment that they will be victorious over us. And we will be tempted to think that God has forgotten us, that God doesn't care for us, that God is preoccupied with other things and he doesn't see or know what is happening to us. But we are assured that this is not the case at all. Not the case at all. Psalm 44. Psalm 44, here we see that this is the experience of the righteous whenever they suffer. It seems momentarily that God is uninterested in what is taking place, but we have to be reminded by faith that this is not the case at all. Psalm 44, let's pick up in verse 9. says, Yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor, and do not go out with us with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You give us as sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sell. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles. Because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. All of this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. We have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back. Our steps have not deviated from your ways. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arise yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? 
For our soul has sunk down into the dust, our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Here, when the prophet is speaking in this way, he doesn't mean, he doesn't believe that God is literally asleep. He doesn't believe that God has literally hidden his face and doesn't see what is taking place. He means that in terms of what they're experiencing. What they're experiencing in the presence, which is the wicked man is oppressing him, right? The voice of him who reproaches and reviles, the presence of the enemy and the avenger. He is persecuting him, and yet the prophet is saying, we have been faithful to you, God, right? We're not living a sinful, wicked life. If we were living a godless life, then we would expect this. Then we would have no complaints, But as it is, we're living a righteous life, and yet we have oppressors, we have enemies. They are afflicting us, they are reviling us. And he's saying, where are you, God? When will you rise up and deliver us from these people? This is the experience that the righteous have in this life. Yet, we are assured that God does not forget. We are assured that God is not idle. He is not blind to the threats of the wicked against the righteous. His eyes are not closed to our plight. God has not left this world to be governed by chance. He knows everything. And not a single hair falls to the ground apart from the knowledge of our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. He sees everything. He hears all of their threats. He knows the schemes of the wicked. And when he sees these things, God is presently in heaven laughing at them. So when the wicked rise up and threaten us, And while we wait for God to deliver us by faith, right? With the eyes of faith, we must look to heaven and see that God is in heaven laughing at the wicked. This is why he gives us a glimpse, a glimpse into heaven to see how it is that God despises them, how God mocks them, the vanity of their attempts to snuff out the righteous. God is laughing at them. And doesn't everyone enjoy a good laugh? Right? Don't we all enjoy to have a good laugh? So if God is delayed, it's perhaps because he wants to laugh more. He wants to laugh more at them before he rises up to destroy them. Right? And why is God laughing at them? Well, notice what he says in verse 13. He sees that his day is coming. God's laughing at him because God sees his day is coming. And what is this day that is coming upon the wicked? It's not the day of his salvation. It is the day of his destruction, the day of his judgment. God has a day appointed for that wicked man, a divine appointment that that wicked man will keep before God. He will stand before his judge and his executioner, and then God will pour out his wrath upon him. This is Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Isn't that the same as our passage? A day is coming? Well, what is the day? It's the day that's burning like an oven, a furnace, burning when God will burn all the evildoers like chaff. 
when God will set them ablaze and leave them nothing, neither root nor branch. God will utterly destroy them. And when that day comes, all of their plans, all of their schemes that they have plotted against the righteous, God's going to turn them back upon them. He's going to pour it out on their own head. And this is why God is mocking him. He sees the foolishness of their plans. Because when they're doing this to the righteous, who are they ultimately doing it to? Who are they ultimately opposing? They're setting themselves against the God of heaven. His mouth struts through all the earth, the wicked man's mouth. He even blasphemes God. He thinks that he can keep God from doing what God wants to do. And this is why God laughs at him. Like if an ant tried to oppose our will, would we not laugh at that ant and then step on it and squash it to pieces? Yes, we would. This is what they are before God. They're like a, a, a nuisance, like a bug that God is going to squash, right? And he's going to mock them before he does so. So when the wicked seeks to destroy the righteous... He's setting himself against the purposes of God. God's purpose is to give his people eternal life. God's purpose is to grant to them the kingdom of God. Right? Didn't we read that last week? The righteous will inherit the land. They will enjoy abundant prosperity. This is what God has determined to give to his people. And the wicked oppose this, but they're not going to get very far. All of their schemes, God is going to turn on them. So is God worried in heaven? Is God in heaven fretting, anxious, sweating because he doesn't know what to do because the wicked are trying to destroy his people? No, who's the ones fretting? That's usually what we're doing. We're on earth fretting, sweating, wondering, oh, where's God at? What's God going to do? But God isn't worried about it at all. God knows exactly what's going to happen. He's in heaven laughing about it because he knows what is going to come upon them. He knows that he in due time will turn the tables on the ungodly. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 speaks of this in relation to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Right, ultimately all of this goes back to their hatred of God and their hatred of His Christ. And in Psalm 2, God is laughing again. Psalm 2 verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Right there. When he's scoffing at them, he's mocking them. He's making fun of them. Right? What, you think you can stop me? You think that you can overturn my will? This is what God is doing. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Right? They think that they will oppose God. Right? And from our perspective, this is the nations, the kings of the earth, the rulers. They look very powerful. They have their armies. They're very mighty. We're terrified by these people. But God's not one bit terrified. And who's on our side? Right? Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Right? We have the Lord of hosts on our side. We have the commander of the Lord's armies on our side. The one who commands myriads of myriads of angels with flaming chariots, with flaming swords. Though we may not be able to see them with our eyes, does that mean that they're not there? 
No, they are here. They are here, and they are with us. And God is with us, and God is laughing at the wicked in their futile attempts to overthrow and to thwart his plans on earth. So we need to stand with God and not be fearful, not be anxious, not fret because of the evildoers, even when they are plotting and planning against us. Even when they're gnashing their teeth at us, we should not be fretting over them, but rather we should trust in the Lord, knowing that in due time, God will lift us up. Psalm 59. Psalm 59, verse 1. says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high, on high away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity, and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me. Not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Notice there again. They're doing this not because of sin. He's saying it. It's not sin, not transgression. I've not done anything to deserve this. So why are they doing it then if it's not for sin? For righteousness sake. For righteousness sake. Arouse yourself to help me and see. You, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. They return at evening, they howl like a dog, and go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, Who hears? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations. There they are, howling like dogs, fierce, ravenous dogs that are terrifying to us, belching forth swords on their mouth. But who is not one bit scared of them? God, he's laughing at them. He's laughing at them in this moment. So not only does God laugh at the wicked, right? He does this. But even the righteous, we must learn to do this as well, right? Aren't we supposed to be like Christ? Aren't we to be Christ-like, to be holy as our Father is holy, as our God is holy? If God laughs at the wicked, then shouldn't we laugh at them as well? Don't we want to imitate God? Isn't it better to laugh at them than to fret because of them? Isn't it better to ridicule them than to be envious of them? And yes, the righteous do this in the Bible. 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah, the prophet of God. Did he not mock the prophets of Baal because of their foolishness? 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 25. The question here is, did Elijah sin when he mocked the prophets of Baal? 1 Kings 18, 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourself and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Bel from morning until noon, saying, O Bel, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a God. Either he is occupied, or gone aside, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. 
So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out of them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Right? Isn't Elijah mocking them? It says it. He says, Elijah mocked them. And is he sinning when he does this? No, he's not sinning at all. He's mocking their idolatry, their foolishness, right? Where is your great God? Where is he? You worship him. Can't he even send fire from heaven to come and, and uh, consume this sacrifice? Right? Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he went on a journey, right? If he's a God, where's he at? You need to awaken him, right? What kind of a God is so pathetic that the worshipers need to awaken the God to get him to come and help them, right? Why would you put your confidence and trust in this God? That's why he's mocking him, to show them how stupid this is, how foolish it is, right? If he's such a great God, then why can't he even do the smallest of tasks? Why do you have to jump around and leap about and cut yourself in order to get him to come to your aid? So he mocked him. This is what the people of God must do. And this is the foolishness of God's people. It is our lack of faith. For while we are on earth fretting, while we are anxious, while we are biting our nails and losing sleep over the wicked, God is in heaven laughing at them, despising them, holding them in derision, knowing that he will soon turn the tables on them. And by faith... We also must rise above our circumstances, see what God is doing in heaven, and join in with Him, right? Join in with Him, knowing in due time, God will thwart all of their plans. And we have many examples in the Bible of God doing this. So not only do we have this clear teaching of God laughing at them because He sees that their day is coming, we have a clear statement that their day is coming We have many examples in the Bible where God did this very thing in order to strengthen our faith. And perhaps the best, the one account that so clearly captures what is taught in Psalm 37 verse 13 is the demise of wicked Haman from the book of Esther. Right? This account is so juicy. Right? It is so satisfying. Right? The way it is written It is meant to invoke laughter from us, right? When you read about the demise of Haman, how all of this came about according to the will of God, it is intended to invoke from us laughter and mockery and how God brought him so gloriously to his demise. Let's see this in Esther. Esther, we'll start and we'll read just a portion here and there beginning in chapter 3. Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. And we have to ask before we begin, could God have killed Haman in the womb? Could God have killed him when he was a child? Could God have killed him whenever these thoughts entered his mind to do these evil deeds? So God could have killed him any point along the way, right? He could have done that. But he didn't. He allowed all of this to play out for our benefit. Right, for our benefit. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of 
uh, Hamadatha, the Agagites, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servant, and this isn't because Mordecai is disrespectful, because he uh, is jealous of him. It's because of righteousness. He's not going to bow down. This bowing down is not the bowing down of respect that one might give to a proper dignity, but this is the bowing down of worship. The bowing down of worship and the type of man that Haman is, Mordecai would not do so. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now, it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reasons would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. Right? It's because of righteousness. Not, not a Jew physically, but a spiritual Jew. A worshiper of God. This is why he won't bow down and worship Haman. So it's for righteousness' sake. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. Isn't that Psalm 37, 12 that we read earlier? He gnashes his teeth at him. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth month of the king of Ahasuerus, per that is, the lot was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all your province of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all the other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest, interest to let them remain. See how much of a liar he is? He's lying. He's bearing false witness. These, these things aren't true. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry out the king's business to put it into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadiah and the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. Then go to chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9. Notice there, he hated Mordecai because of his righteousness, and it wasn't enough to destroy Mordecai. He also wanted to destroy Mordecai's people. Isn't that similar to Christ? They hated Christ, but it's not enough to kill Christ. They also hate his people. They want to put his people to death as well. Esther chapter 5, verse 9. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house, and sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, and the number of his sons, in every instance where the king had magnified him, and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even as to the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. 
Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Zinzeresh, his wife, and all of his friends said to him, Have a gallows fifty cubits high made in the morning, and ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Then chapter 6. During the night, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, that were read before the king. And he found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. The king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. See the the, the timing of this? See how perfect the timing is in all of this? The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to the one, to the king's most noble princess, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horses you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home mourning with his head covered. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and to all of his friends everything that happened to him. Then all of his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day, also as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who would presume to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy is the wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. 
for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the palace, into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which had been prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Then lastly, chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, when the king's command and edict were to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand before them. For the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. Even all the princes of the province, the satraps, the governors, and all those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Thus the Jews struck all of their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. So there you have it. Haman, wicked Haman, plotting. He's a schemer, right? He's a vile, malicious schemer. He devised wicked plans against Mordecai. He gnashed his teeth against Mordecai and the Jews, not because Mordecai was sinning, but because of his righteousness, he was filled with rage against him. And while he's out there doing all of his evil deeds... Right? And the Jews, for some of that, were in turmoil. Right? They were panicking because of what was taking place. In, in a proper sense, that's fine, because they didn't know what was going to happen, and it was a very evil thing that had been pronounced against them. But while all of that is taking place, is God in distress in heaven? God knows exactly how this is going to end. God knows that when Haman is passing this edict, for the destruction of the Jews, that it's actually going to be their enemies that are destroyed. God is going to use it for their benefit, and they will destroy their enemies. God knows that when Haman is building the gallows 50 cubits high for the purpose of hanging his enemy Mordecai, God knows it's going to be Haman who is swinging from these gallows, who is killed on his own gallows that he made for Mordecai. God sees all of this. He knows how it's going to end. He sees the rage, the plot of Haman, but he knows it's going to end in his own demise, and this is why God is laughing. This is why God is mocking him. He's laughing because he sees the day is coming for Haman very, very quickly, and it's all going to be turned against him. Isn't this also the case with Daniel, with the prophet Daniel, his enemies? They schemed against him. They unjustly accused him. They had these edicts passed against him for the purpose of destroying him. He was unjustly thrown into a den of lions. And while all of that is happening, 
right? While Daniel is being cast into the den of lions, God is in heaven laughing because he knows that the very next day, the ones who threw Daniel into the lion's den are themselves going to be thrown into that lion's den and they're going to be utterly destroyed. He knows the tables are going to turn on them. What about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? While he's on earth, being unjustly accused by both Jews and Romans, having to stand before Annas, before Caiaphas, before the Jewish court, before Pilate, before Herod, them treating him with such shame, such contempt, the arrogance and pride of these wicked men, Pilate saying to him, don't you know that I can have you killed? Herod mocking him, ridiculing him, them accusing him of blasphemy, doing all of these things to him. And yet while that is happening to Christ on earth, God is in heaven laughing, knowing that every single one of them, Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, all of them are going to have to bow down before who one day? Isn't the table going to turn? They're going to be on the other side of the judgment seat, and they're going to have to bow down before Christ, and they will be forced to say with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's going to turn it on them. They unjustly accused. They unjustly condemned Christ. He will accuse them. He will condemn them. Not unjustly. He will do so in righteousness. God sees what's coming. And the shock. Can you imagine the shock on Annas and Caiaphas, on Pilate and Herod when they died? And then they were standing before the very one that they condemned in this life, having to answer to him for their evil, for their sins that they committed against him. This is what God is doing. This is what he's doing even now. He knows what awaits the wicked. He knows the justice that he will give to his people. He knows how sweet it will be when it happens. So he's laughing beforehand, anticipating the glory of what is going to come. And this is why God allows the injustice. He allows them to continue on so that their demise will be even greater and our vindication will be even greater. Again, as was with Haman. Could God have killed Haman at the very beginning? He could have just wiped him out. But had he done that, we wouldn't have this great story, right, of what happened to him, how God brought all of these things against him. Wasn't it sweeter to see what happened to him after all of his plots and plans and schemes descended upon his own head and God brought all of the evil he intended against Mordecai and the Jews to rest on him and his family and their enemies? Now, another point to consider concerning the God of laughter, the God who mocks his enemies. Do we believe in this God? Do we worship this God? Do we proclaim this God? For this vision of God laughing at his enemies is a far cry from what is believed and taught in the average so-called Christian church today, where God would never behave in this way. They would be ashamed, they would be appalled to even think that God would laugh at the wicked, that God would mock people, right? God isn't laughing at the wicked. He's weeping over them in their own mind. God is in anguish over the wicked. He so desperately wants to save each and every one of them. He wants them to be his forever friends. If only they would use their free will to believe in him, then God would save him. Isn't this the false God? that's being promoted and proclaimed in many so-called Christian churches today. 
the God who is wringing his hands in agony because he so desperately wants to save every single person. Is that what's happening in Psalm 37? That's not the case at all. God is laughing because he sees their day is coming. Do we find it offensive that God mocks the wicked? Are we ashamed of this truth? Because if we are, Jesus will be ashamed of us on the day of judgment. We cannot be ashamed of these things because it's found in God's word. This is God's own declaration, his own declaration concerning himself, his own declaration concerning his attitude and his actions toward the raging of the wicked. So we must believe it, we must love it, and we must shout it from the rooftops. And you all have Bibles, right? Your Bibles are open to Psalm 37, verse 13. I'm not making it up. It's right there in your own Bibles. You can see it with your own eyes. So what does it mean when it says that God laughs because he sees his day is coming? What does it mean other than what it says? That's what it must mean. And people say, well, that's in the Psalms. It's poetry. Well, so Psalm 23. Isn't Psalm 23 in the Psalms? Isn't that poetry as well? But we take that literally, but this, well, it's all figurative and it doesn't really mean that. No, people don't like it. They don't like it because they don't like the God of the Bible. But this is the God of the Bible, and this is the one to whom we must give an account. We don't want him laughing at us, do we? Then we better not live in sin as they do. We must repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and not persecute his people. And does God change? No. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Right, so this is not only, well, in the Old Testament, God did that. Right, in the Old Testament, God laughed at the schemes of the wicked. But in the New Testament, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do it in our day. Nor is it only in the Old Testament that the wicked behave like this. No, they do it in our day as well. Right, people behave like this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And God responds to it the same in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. When people today scheme and plot against the righteous, right? when they're doing the things that are described in Psalm 37, the God who does not change is still in heaven today, presently laughing, mocking them, holding them in derision. And who is in heaven laughing? Is it only God the Father? The mean, angry God of the Old Testament, so-called? Is the Father laughing, but Jesus is weeping? Is the father laughing and Jesus is rebuking him, telling him you shouldn't do this, this is unseemly, this is uncomely, that, that God, you shouldn't behave like this? Is it only the father who behaves like this? May it never be. May it never be. For what does Jesus himself testify? What are the words of Christ? I and the father are one. I and the father are one. John chapter 10, verse 30. He does nothing on his own accord. He only does what he sees his Father doing. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. And Jesus is in perfect agreement with God the Father. So if God the Father is laughing at the wicked, Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, is also laughing at them as he himself anticipates their destruction. And if our God, and if our Jesus does not laugh at the demise of the wicked, then the God we worship and the Jesus we worship is not the God and is not the Jesus of the Bible. It's an idol, an idol of our own making. God does not reluctantly, he does not with hesitation 
bring the evil deeds of the wicked upon his own head. He does it with joy, with gladness, with delight. He turns their sin against them. Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 63. Deuteronomy 28, 63 says, It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and to multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess. Notice there again, the same word, the Lord delighted to prosper you. Just as God delighted to bless you, so God also will delight to destroy you if you live in what? If you live in sin. It's the one and the same. The delight is one and the same. Verse 14 and 15, Psalm 37, 14. says, The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. The wicked have their instruments of violence, the sword and the bow, that they might kill the afflicted and the needy, to slay the one who's upright in conduct. So there, the afflicted and needy are not the afflicted and needy of the world, but the afflicted and needy are those who are upright in conduct, the righteous, the godly ones. Afflicted and needy are being used as metaphors to describe the righteous because in this life, the righteous will many times be afflicted and needy because they are the few, they are the remnant, they are the minority, and the wicked are the majority who have the power and use their power to afflict those who are righteous so that they are poor and needy. So he's not talking about the afflicted amongst the idolaters. He's not talking about the needy amongst the wicked. There are many people who are afflicted and who are needy, but who are sinners against God. Those are not the ones that God is going to help. Here, he's talking about the righteous who are afflicted and needy because they're upright in heart, because they're upright in their conduct. They live in such a way, in such a pure way now amongst the Gentiles that the Gentiles see it and they hate it and they despise them for these things. And this is in reference to this life. They draw the sword and they bend the bow. Now, right in this present life, they have their power. They use their power to afflict the righteous, even to the point of putting them to death, of slaying them, right, of killing them. But God will take their weapons and turn them against them. Their sword that they want to use to thrust into the heart of the righteous, God's going to take that sword and he's going to stab it into their own heart. He's going to turn it on them. The bow that they have to shoot the upright in heart, God will break their bows so that it destroys them, so that they are the ones who are injured and harmed. The sword will be thrown into their heart. The bow, when they draw it back to shoot, it's going to break. And if you pull your bow back and it breaks before you shoot it, what happens? Who gets hurt, right? It swacks you in the face, right? The arrow goes flying around and it sticks you. So you're the one who is injured and harmed, though you were seeking to harm another. God will take their weapons. He will take their plans. He will take their schemes. And he's going to turn every single one of it against them. 
He will do it in the future, right? In the future. Now they will surround us. They have their swords out. They have their bows drawn. They surround us. God could immediately deliver us if he likes, but here he speaks of it happening in the future. In the future, he's going to turn it against them. And so we're reminded that we have to wait. We have to trust in the Lord and wait for God to rescue us and repay with afflictions those who afflict us. And when will this happen? Right? When will it be that God will cause their sword to enter into their hearts when God will break their bows? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. There are times where God will do this in this life, as it was with Haman, as it was with Daniel's adversaries, as a symbol or a testimony of what he will do in the life to come on the day of judgment. But ultimately, the deliverance of God's people will be when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. This is when he will turn all of their schemes against them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God, for our perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well. All right, isn't that what we're talking about here? Repaying with affliction those who afflict you. They draw their swords against us. God turns it against them. They bend their bow against us. God breaks their bow. Right? Well, when is this going to happen? When will God give relief to those who are afflicted? When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who believe, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Then he will deal retribution on them. And until that day comes, what are we called to do? The righteous shall live by his faith. We have to trust in the Lord, wait patiently for him, live a godly life, and commit our way to the Lord. And knowing in due time, God will vindicate his people and he will repay his enemies according to what they have done. So let us then trust in the Lord, commit our way to God, live a godly life, right? Seek to live at peace with all men, but not at the expense of truth, not at the expense of righteousness. And when men rise up against us, entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, knowing in due time, God will grant relief to us. Let's pray.
Father, we, Lord, thank you, Lord, that you have taught and instructed us so clearly in your word, Lord, concerning the need for our endurance, Lord, the need for our perseverance in this life. Lord, it is through many tribulations that we must enter into the kingdom of God. And Lord, this not by accident, Lord, not by oversight, but Lord, intentionally, because of your will, Lord, because you know what is best for your people, and Lord, you know how to sanctify us, and Lord, prepare us for eternal glory. Lord, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Lord, if we are redeemed, if we are your people, we do not belong to this world. We're not of the world. And this is why the world will hate us. Just as the world hated Christ, so the world will hate us. And so, Father, we pray that you would protect us, Lord, that you would preserve us, Lord, that you would give us faith, Lord, so that we might overcome, Lord, the threats, the persecutions, the revilings that come because of wicked men. Lord, we know that the good seed that fell among the rocks, that that good seed was choked out, and that that good seed did not bear any fruit, but it withered up and died because of persecutions that came on account of the word of God. Lord, we don't want that to be true of us. Lord, we don't want to be the seed that was sown among the rocks. Lord, we want to be the seed in the good soil. Lord, that endured and persevered. Lord, that overcame the persecutions and sufferings that came because of the word of Christ, because of our faith in you. And so, Father, we pray that you would grant to us, Lord, the faith that we need. Lord, the perseverance, the strength, the endurance Lord, that we might overcome, Lord, all of the schemes of the devil and, Lord, all of the plots and plans of the wicked and, Lord, how it is that they conspire against us. Lord, we thank you that you have given to us a glimpse, Lord, of what you are doing in heaven even today. Lord, knowing that there are many wicked people in our own day, Lord, who have devised many plans against you, Lord, who strut about the earth, Lord, who open their mouth and they blaspheme you. Lord, they devise evil schemes. Lord, they promote that which is wicked and vile and contrary to your word. And Lord, we know that even now in heaven, you see these things. Lord, you are laughing at them, mocking them. Lord, you despise them as phantoms. And Lord, very quickly you will rise up from your throne and you will come and deal out retribution upon them. Lord, may we see that all of those who oppose you will be destroyed. Lord, that we might not join in with them, but rather come out from among them and be separate from them, says the Lord. Lord, we don't want to be destroyed with the wicked, and so we know that we cannot live as they do. Lord, we cannot compromise. Lord, in terms of righteousness or truth, in order to get along in this present world. But we have to commit our way to you. And so, Father, we pray that we would be faithful to you, Lord, that we would not be compromisers, but that we would stand boldly for the truth and that we would live a godly life and continue entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. Lord, we do pray that you would quickly come. Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, be revealed from heaven with your mighty angels. And Lord, grant us relief. And Lord, deal out your retribution on those who do not know you. Lord, this will be glorious, and it will bring much glory and honor to you. 
And so, Lord, we pray that you would do it quickly. And, Lord, until that day comes, Lord, grant to us the persevering faith, Lord, that we need to enter into the kingdom of God. So, Lord, be with us, help us in all things. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.